Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, I don't have too much in the way of notes for you today. I am uh, fresh back from the Conj 2014, which was awesome. If you were there, it was really great to see you, especially uh, appreciate those that came up to say hi and to chat about the podcast a little bit. That was really, really nice to meet you. And if you weren't there, well, we certainly hope that you can make it next year. Um, It was a great conference, in my opinion, a lot of good talks, um, which are now all available online. You can find them at uh, youtube.com slash closure TV. Um, and, uh, you know, we had 500 attendees and about two thirds of them were first timers. So we were really, really excited about that, getting to meet a lot of new people. Although of course there were a bunch of old friends there as well. So it was a great time. I uh, hope that you're going to be able to join us again next year. (laughs) Although I have to say I came back and I had so many good conversations that for a few days I completely lost my voice. Um, fortunately, as you can hear, it is back. I guess it's fortunate. <laughs> anyway, um, had a really good time, and uh, just, again, thanks to everybody that came up and said hi. Always really, really nice to, to meet the listeners and uh, appreciate the, the comments and compliments that people gave, so that was great. Um, well, I won't hold you up anymore. We will move on to episode 67 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone. Today is Thursday, October 2nd in 2014, and this is the Cognicast. Today, we have two guests. We are very, very pleased to welcome to the show Peter Monks. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Craig. Glad and, to be here. Yeah, it's great. And Carlo Schola. Yep. Hi there. And did I did I get it right? I know I practiced your name like six times, but hopefully I didn't butcher it too badly. Yeah, that was perfect. All right, great. So, well, let's, uh, let's start with the music as we... <laughs> are supposed to always do. I'm laughing because, of course, I have forgotten once or twice. But, Carlo, I'm going to throw it to you. What is the song that we've been playing in with? Uh, the song I chose was um, uh, something from uh, from uh, the land I come from, uh, Sardinia, uh, one of the least known islands uh, from Italy. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, uh, the, the, the lyrics are in the Sardinian language. So my thought was about combining high tech like uh, closure and programming languages with uh, traditional stuff and uh, that's pretty much it. The title is uh, Florin Sunia, which means uh, flower in the snow. Yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, like I, can gu- I can guarantee that's the only time we've had a, a, a song sung in Sardinian. So yeah. that's very, very neat. Well, great. So we are we are definitely happy to have you on the show. You, you guys actually... Um, pinged me and said, I, we have, you know, we think it would be cool to have, to have a talk from some, some people who are using Clojure, but not professionally. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that there's a lot of people out there, you know, as a growing language, there's always going to be a community that comes in from kind of the outside and uses it for hobby projects or 
for other, you know, non-work stuff. And that's um, an important part of a growing community. And, and I think that describes at least some of the ways you're using closure. So I thought it was an excellent idea. Um, you to have a specific um, context in which you have made good use of closure, which is a, a product uh, called uh, Lambda Alf. Is that the right way to pronounce that, by the way? Oh, Lambda Alf. Lambda Alf. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, there we go. This Lambda Alf. Right. And so maybe we can start there, whichever of you, maybe we'll throw it to Peter. If you could uh, describe the project and the way in which you're using closure on that, we can go from there. Would that be it? And and by the way, if you want to, uh, and we'll come back to Carlot as well. We'll uh, if you want to introduce yourself a bit along the way, that that would be that would be excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Craig. And um, yes, yeah, so Lambdalf actually is a project that Carlo started, I think, in late 2010, if I have that right. Yeah, something like um, that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so we both actually work with an open source content management system called Alfresco. It's LGPL licensed kind of document management, content management type system. I actually happen to work for Alfresco as an employee and Carlo has worked for a number of our partners and very actively in the Alfresco community side. And the interesting thing and the reason that Lambdalf kicked off is that Alfresco is a Java-based application. So it runs in a servlet container and it uses you know, a lot of Java infrastructure, JWC for database access and the Spring framework and, and so on and so forth. And it, as part of it, it has a number of different extension points and, and APIs. There's, you know, the usual kind of REST APIs and ways of externally accessing the system. But there's also an in-process Java API that implementers can use to extend the behavior of the core system either just by calling into APIs or in fact being called by the system when certain actions occur. And this is all very much the standard Java Spring type of development cycle. It's edit, compile, maybe run a unit test, deploy your application into a running server, test it out in the running server, make sure everything's hunky-dory. And, you know, that's fairly typical kind of mid-2000s style of development. Alfresco also has a JavaScript engine embedded, the, the Rhino uh, interpreter, and that has some benefits from a productivity perspective. But I think, and, and Carlo, jump in if I get this wrong, but I think Carlo's original sort of impetus, so one of the reasons for founding Lambdalf was this idea that, you know what, there's, there's this great closure language. It's got a much, much more um, productive development cycle, and as a language, it's much more productive than the Java language. What if yeah. we were to plumb this into Alfresco wrap some of the Alfresco Java APIs in something that's a little, more, little bit more idiomatically closure and then see what happens. Like, let's just muck around with it. So, yeah, I think that one of the first uh, goals for the Lambda project for me was to just open up a REPL against uh, the running Alfresco application and just for, for more uh, rapid development cycles. Otherwise, you would have to, to just, you know, change up, I don't know, adding two characters to, to your source code, recompile, redeploy, wait, you know, between one and ten minutes to, to see your changes. And what I wanted to do, you know, I, I was, uh, when I started Lambda, uh, I was actually learning Clojure myself. So that was my first functional programming language, it was my first Lisp, and I had very lot to learn. And uh, the, the best way I found to, to, uh, to learn Clojure was to apply it to what I was doing regularly uh, in my uh, daily job, well, aside of it. Actually, I, I don't think I ever applied anything of, uh, of Lambda to, to my uh, Alfresco project, but hey, uh, I was uh, building the, land, the library as I was uh, doing something for, uh, for my company. 
And uh, yes, the first thing, one of the first things I've done is well, uh, trying to to see how to uh, to match uh, something which is very idiomatic in in Java. I think the Alfresco APIs are pretty clean uh, with that regard, and and, and they they feel. Uh, nice APIs when you're doing Java, but then when you're doing Clojure, you are in a completely different state of mind. You need different APIs, you need different data structures, and, and, and you need different uh, idioms to use. So I was exercising this, this duality of Java versus Clojure API, let's say, impedance mismatch. And, but then uh, uh, soon thereafter, I, I started to try you know, just open a REPL, and with a few APIs, I already created a few wrappers around uh, Alfresco APIs. I was already able to, to you know, explore the internal parts of the system and understand what I was doing. So that was uh, pretty instructive, I have to say. So, so were you, I mean, I, I could imagine having a, a Java application in which there's no interactivity, as you say, the kind of the compile, uh, maybe test, deploy, run cycle. Yeah. Um, but well, you, I have to, you, there, you, there's one thing to say, actually. So as Peter mentioned, there's another possibility when it comes to Alfresco. You, you can use JavaScript. And, uh, and uh, mm -hmm. Alfresco being a content repository, you could, you know, with a running application, you could deploy your JavaScript into uh, the running application and run the updated version of it. Thing is, it's definitely not like a REPL. You know, it's not interactive. It's still faster, but it's still uh, a deep, uh, com not compiled, but deploy and run development cycle, which is slower than, 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 than a REPL can, can be. So you, so the, the JavaScript wasn't giving you any ability to inspect the state of the program or, or even alter the state of the program. It was, yeah. which, which I assume is what you got from having a, a REPL is, show me what the value of this, what the state of this, in, this internal structure is. Is that, was that a, ben, a benefit, the benefit or? That was one of the benefits. Other benefits were like, you know, uh, exploratory development, like try, let's try to put together the code in this this way or the other to see if it works, and, and then and then write uh, let's say production code with the the result of those experiments, instead of having to, to again write your tests and locking stuff and try to deploy the application, see if it works, and, and and so on. Gotcha. Okay, so you this is in like, like 2010. You said I'm getting started with Closure. You were able to get a little ways and then but I mean here we are 2014 obviously there's been a yeah. few things happened since then so I wonder if you could carry the story forward for us from there uh, from, from my side well I stopped doing any uh, alfresco stuff in in, uh, in in my daily daily job activities so uh, that the project has been a little bit dormant uh, for for a couple of years I have to say uh, because I was just you know trying new ideas maybe uh, upgrading it to the latest uh, closure releases but not much development uh, on on the project until actually uh, Peter got interested into it, and from you know uh, having an, an insider, somebody working for Alfresco that that's really interested into the in the library and building, uh, that was the, the the stimulus for for continuing development. Actually, I think these days Peter is is doing most of the job in uh, in trying to to give a new shape to the project to 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 the library. You, if you look into GitHub, you will see a different projects that are part of the Lambda family, like a lining and uh, template and this kind of thing. So what, what's happening these days is uh, probably trying to get it a little bit more mature because it, it started as a, a, a playground for, for ideas more than uh, having a, a solid uh, a project for it. And now it's, it's uh, trying to, you know, getting a little bit more people on board and, uh, and uh, making it more serious, uh, giving it a more serious plan for the future. Gotcha. 
Well, Peter, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to hear about your side because it sounded like there was a bit of a gap for Carlo and you were the one that kind of did the, the more recent uh, on-ramp, in, on-ramp into more active development. So what was that uh, arc kind of like from your perspective? Yeah, it was, it's a good question. It was, it was actually kind of fun. Um, I've only met Carlo, I think, once or twice in person. Well, obviously, he's in Europe and I'm in, in North America. And so it's it's uh, it's a rare opportunity that we get together. get to get yeah. together. But I very clearly remember a nightclub, an evening at a nightclub in Berlin, and there was a Alfresco conference going on, which I'd, I was speaking at, and, and Carlo too. And uh, we met in this nightclub, and I can just remember this, you know, fiery Sardinian talking about this wonderful <laughs> new language and how he was going to be presenting on it uh, the next day. So I went along to his talk, and he was presenting on Lambdalf, or what became Lambdalf. And what I really remember being struck by was the succinctness of the code, how how these things that in Java had a lot of kind of formality and, you know, boilerplate and needing to handle exceptions. And, and, and by exceptions, I mean both logical exceptions as well as actual Java exceptions. And the code just being obscured, the, the logic you're trying to, whatever it is you're trying to do with Alfresco being obscured in this sort of mess of, 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 of boilerplate, of formality. And the closure code that, that uh, Carlo was presenting didn't have that or didn't, to my eye, have that. And I was like, well, is that because these are simplified examples or is that really what the language is like? So I then started kind of toying with closure a little bit, really on my own time. I, I have a, a habit of if I want to pick up a new language, I'll implement Conway's Game of Life. I find it's just a nice, small enough example, but real world enough example to get a taste of a language fairly quickly, you know, a couple of hours, you can bang it out and get a, a sense. And closure was wonderful. And I've, I've since seen, um, I think Christoph Grand, uh, if I'm getting his name correct, mm-hmm. he has like a two line solution to game of life on his blog, which I still don't understand. I actually am not, I, I can see that it works, but I haven't really fully grasped why it works and how it works. But I, I had a similar experience. I think I came up with a 20 or 30 line solution. And in Java, it's, you know, reams and reams of code so that got me very interested i was like well it's clearly something here the code is not unreadable it's not perl or or something like that not not that i want to disparage perl but there are some languages i think that are very difficult to read and closure had the advantage of succinctness but also readability i then went back and thought well carlo did this work on lambdalf um, and this was probably 2012 by this stage i guess and yeah i was like well this lambdalf stuff is great um gives me a REPL gives me access to APIs that I know very well because I use them all the time in my day job. And, you know, it's a great way for me to experiment. And really just it snowballed from there. Originally, the project was built, I think, back when Carlo started on it, Linegan was still not the kind of de facto build tool in the Clojure ecosystem. I think, was it Cake? There was Cake. and Yeah, there was Cake for a while. They merged. Cake with... for a while, yeah. Um, and, and of course, we use Maven extensively in the sort of Alfresco ecosystem. So Carla had chosen Maven with the Maven Clojure plugin. I'd started using Linegan. I think by then Linegan had pretty much won that, that, that battle or had merged with, with Cake and had become a bit bigger than the sum of the parts. And um, so that was the first thing was trying to bring it over to, to Linegan. And that then led to this whole thing of, well, the core Lambdalf library is great, and it's a wonderful way to access the Java APIs in Alfresco idiomatically, but what about all the tooling around it? What about how do other people get you know, on-ramped into this, this great set of tooling without having to learn or, or cobble together things themselves? 
And I thought, well, this is something new. It's something that that uh, Carlo hadn't done. And I actually started working there first. So I moved Lambdalf over from Maven to Linegan. I then prepared a or started work on a Alfresco module package plugin for Linegan. That this is the format that we use for deploying extensions into the running system. And the idea here is the REPL, the closure, it's JAR itself, those get packaged into an Alfresco module package, an AMP file, we call them. And then that gets deployed into the, the Alfresco system. And at that point, you can switch to a REPL style of kind of experimentation and development. Linegan itself knew nothing about this format. It's not a complex format. It's just a zip file at the end of the day. So the, the, the AMP plugin was, you know, it's again, 30 or 40 lines of just file schlepping, basically. It's, you know, it's a thing of beauty. And actually, a, another colleague of ours, another member of the Alfresco community, Mark Stang, he wanted to, he was interested in this as well, and started work on an AMP template. So we also have the ability now for Linegan to generate a template project or, or a skeleton of a project from a template that is optimized for that AMP structure. And then the AMP plugin can pick up your project, package it up, and deploy it. So that was kind of how I came back into Lambdalf. And I knew Carlo hadn't worked on it for a little while, but you know, being open source, we an open source company, we do sort of have these, we have it drilled into us fairly, fairly uh, early on that um, intellectual property and ownership is an important concept. So I didn't want to come in kind of roughshod and, and ride all over Carlo's work. So I actually did some of this peripheral stuff first and then st kind of back-ended. And about I don't know, Carlo, maybe six months ago, we sort of agreed that yeah. we we created a new GitHub project. Um, we moved the code over, merged in the Maven to Linegan changes that I'd made, and we kind of level set and started work from there. So the project's now on Clojars. It's on GitHub. We have the AMP template deployed and the AMP plugin deployed, so it should be a fairly easy ramp up. But it was, it, it, and and now we can get back into focusing on wrapping more and more of the Alfresco sort of feature set with the APIs and, you know, making, providing more, more opportunities for developers to use Clojure instead of Java for, for the things they're doing to extend Alfresco. So th this is interesting. I mean, the, and I want to ask you both this question. Uh, maybe I'll uh, start with, with Carlo's answer. I picture you, Carlo, giving this talk to a group mm -hmm. of Alfresco developers and, you know, they're primarily Java people and in, in 20, 10 or even 2012, or even today, I would imagine that it's quite common to address a group of Java developers who have maybe never even heard of Clojure, let alone seen this you know, unfamiliar uh, syntax. So w what's been your experience over time as you have interacted with people in you know, presenting uh, Lambdalf or, and particularly the Clojure aspects of it? Like how, how has that been received or you know what I mean? Like what's that interaction been like? Uh, if I recall uh, correctly, the, the first talk I gave at the Fresco uh, DevCon in 2012 or 2011, something like that, the attendance was not so great. So the conference was, I think, with uh, 300 something uh, people, and my talk received barely 30 something people. So that, but that, that was really something I, I have to say because, as you said, you know, it's it's not especially uh, back then. It was not something very close to that world closure and uh, the fun part of it was that given that it was such um, a brand new concept for uh, so many people I got the chance to explain 
the, the, the core ideas behind the language because you cannot just go there and, and expose this new library that you made with a technology that nobody can understand. You have to explain the technology first. So I, I got uh, to, to explain, not to talk about more than explain, uh, about immutability, about functions as first-class objects and these kind of things. And that was pretty nice. And uh, the, the exposing those concepts uh, together with uh, uh, what, how do you deal with a content repository such as a fresco, uh, and, and uh, together with the Java, you know, the counterexample. What I what I what I did was to, to put together put, uh, next to uh, to each other the Java snippet uh, snippet and the closure snippet, uh, and, and the, we're doing let's say the same thing and and comparing the pros and cons of, of uh, both approaches. Uh, the, the the gag was, for instance, uh, let's count the parentheses. You know, the the people say that Lisps uh, contain too many parentheses, and I just put you know the Java code that does the same thing as my closure code and counting them. Well putting together uh, brackets and, and curly braces and everything, showing that, that actually Java has more. Yeah. Kind of things. yeah. The reaction to that talk was, was good, I would say. No, not, not great, no, not, not enthusiasm, but I, I got a couple of uh, hallway uh, chats with, uh, with a couple of people that, that uh, got interested into the topic. And actually, I, I started to discover that quite some people were interested into, into closure and, and its ecosystem. Also, I... Uh, here in Amsterdam, I, I run the, the Amsterdam Closurians uh, meetup, and I get uh, the chance. I got the chance to see over the years how this community is, is getting broader and bigger, uh, both from from enthusiasts' uh, point of view and, and companies as well. Uh, the Netherlands uh, are a very small country, but still I can see quite some companies approaching it, and uh, and uh, yeah, that, that that has been lots of fun recently, especially. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, from our perspective too, it's it's been a really exciting growth curve. I mean, we are we're seeing a, a huge uptick uptick in interest every year. I mean, the conj gets bigger, our business, our consulting businesses, demand keeps growing. So it it is exciting, right? I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's it's really cool when you kind of discover something. You're like, I think this is cool, and then you get to see other people make the same discovery. It's very um, very satisfying. Well, actually, um, one thing just to add to Carlo, if, if I remember correctly, his talk was actually titled um, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Perens. Yes, <laughs> I, I thought that was, was the, 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 the subtitle. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was very clever. And then the counting of parentheses was clever too. And it made me realize, of course, the objection I think a lot of Java developers or even you know, C, C++ style, that, that language family, it's not the number of parentheses that, they're really, that, that kind of spoil the, the optics for them. It's where they're located. That's, mm -hmm. I think, what really throws a Java C, C++ developer's mental parser is the fact that the parentheses are all in the wrong places. But I, And to be honest, I found that that took a little while with my own just learning. That took longer than I expected to get used to. But now when I go back to Java, because, of course, I'm still working in Java on a day-to-day -day basis, I find Java much – it feels more – arbitrary i guess the rules about where punctuation goes it's just there's so many exceptions and there's so many rules that you have to remember and closure and really lisps i guess in general it seems it's it's really very simple there's the function position and everything else is an argument of course closure adds the syntactic sugar around data structures and other literals but i find closure is actually easier for me to parse just because there's really no exceptions it's just kind of almost the minimal set of rules syntax that that's possible. Yeah, it's a very it's a very small language relative to some others. Yeah. 
you mentioned parenthesis repla- uh, placement. That, uh, so I was at Strangeloop recently, and um, Stephen Wolfram gave a, a keynote, which was quite interesting. He presented the uh, Wolfram language, which is an, an interesting mm-hmm. concept. We'll post a link to the um, to his uh, talk, which is already up on YouTube. People can find it there. But he presented the language, which which has some really interesting features. Uh, I haven't used Mathematica, but I I believe it's the case that it it, it could be considered a Lisp. Despite the fact that syntactically, um, at a token level, it doesn't use parentheses in the way that you know someone looking at scheme or closure would would say that looks just like a lisp, because it's actually possible to maintain. I think, not being a language designer, I'm pretty sure it's possible to maintain the the aspect of lisp in which your program is a tree essentially, yeah. but you don't have to have the operator inside the parentheses. In other words, you could say, instead of saying, you know, open paren foo two, three, right, to pass two and three to the operator foo, I believe you can still do something along the lines of foo open paren two, three, which looks a lot more like, you know, a traditional, um, you know, Algol family language like JavaScript or C or um, Java or something like that. But you, you, you still, in other words, there can still be an unambiguous tree structure to the program, even if the operator goes outside the parens. I've well, never... I think, I think that at the, at the beginning, uh, Lisp was not... The, the original articles about Lisp from John McCarthy, they were not using parentheses as we know them in, in today's Lisps. I think the, it was actually what you are describing. They were using, I think, M, M expressions, if I, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and the parentheses was like after the, uh, the operator name or, or function name. Yeah, it's a cool idea. I mean, you, you wonder what would happen if, if we had a, a language that was a lisp but that didn't put the parentheses as the first character whether people's you know and if that was the only difference whether the reaction from certain you know some people have that reaction to the to the, to the syntax would I don't would think so huh? because if, if you look at you know when people start to have weird faces looking at uh, lisp uh, code is is when they see the end of, of a big expression oh, right, you know right. all, all the parentheses that group together to the end that's something that people cannot really process, probably. And uh, I- even if you, if you invert the order of uh, the first parenthesis and, and uh, the function name, you still have a bunch of uh, closing ones at the end. And that's going to make, yeah, to, to let weird faces appear around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now this actually reminds me of something I wanted to ask. I think it was you, Peter. We were the three of us shooting emails back and forth, trying to get the episode set up. And you mentioned, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was you mentioned in passing, Peter, that you're not a fan of the threading operators, meaning <laughs> the, the arrow macros, which, you yeah. know, I use all the time and love to pieces. And so, <laughs> you know, and it's actually one way to address the giant list of closing parens issue is, is use of those does tend to... Um, uh, decrease that. Could you talk about why you don't like those uh, operators? I'd, be, I'd love to hear your opinion. Well, for starters, I needed to be deliberately contentious about something just to make this a little more interesting. <laughs> so I'll, I'll admit to some uh, being a dis- bit disingenuous with my uh, motives there. But it was it was actually interesting. I, I have, um, I, as you mentioned then, that was me. I definitely have a dislike of the threading macros when I'm reading code. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was until... I saw a tweet from Bridget Hillier, I think it was. She's been doing these sort of just sporadic tweets, or at least they're sporadic in my feed, on, you know, just beginner-type tips for Clojure developers, for newcomers to Clojure, which are are wonderful because that's sort of the level I still feel like I'm at. And one of them was, 
Closure should be read inside to outside, which generally means right to left. I was like, oh yeah, you know, that makes sense. That's the nesting, you know, the nesting of parentheses and so on, the nesting of expressions. And then it hit me. That's why I don't like the threading macros. The threading macros force you to read left to right and they remove the grouping of expressions to some degree. And so my mental parser has to flip switch gears from reading inside out right to left to reading linearly left to right or top to bottom, depending on how you've you know laid out your use of the threading macro. And that's why I I realized I just I don't want to have two mental parsers. I already deal with enough with Java and JavaScript and other languages. Having two closure parsers, if you will, and I'm talking mental parsers here, it's too much for my admittedly small brain to, to cope with. So that's why it struck me. And so I, I do use the threading macros from time to time, particularly for Java interop. That's where they're um, mm-hmm. where I find that they do make sense because often you, if you're translating Java code, you know you get these stacked dot notation, multi-line sort of multi-function um, call type things, which in Java I try to avoid as well. And there's a thing called the law of Demeter that talks about why that's a bad idea, but. In any event, when you are faced with code like that, bringing it into closure, the threading macro makes perfect sense. But but other than that, I do try to avoid it. And in fact, you know, Carlo and I have had a few, I think, I wouldn't call them commit wars, but we've had a few things where we've gone back and forth on something and threading macros was one of those things. I think, Carlo, yeah. you, you're a bit more of a fan than I am. Uh, well, yes, I, I actually like them more than you do, most likely, yes. And uh, that, that was yeah, reviewing your, your code. I, I, I did the change, and you changed it back, and then you, you came with your opinionated version of the code that you know, stripped out all the errors. Okay, cool. Well, so, you know, obviously reasonable people can differ. And I think uh, your point, Peter, about it being about your, your mental model is a great one. I mean, we've said before on the show that uh, software is about people, and uh, that's that's definitely true from a standpoint of, of language. Um, you know, these these constructs are for us, not for the computer. <laughs> so I can definitely see that uh, different people could have different takes on it. But I'd like to go back and, and pick the thread back up of the Lambda story. I mean, I think we had kind of gotten to, you were getting involved, Peter, you were starting to work with Carlo, but bring us more forward towards the, the present day and maybe even uh, to the future, if it makes sense to talk about that. I'd love to hear kind of... Uh, how we got here to the show and what's going on in the future, et cetera. Yeah, sure. And it probably helps if you don't mind, if I take a moment just to talk about um, our fresco capabilities and then talk about what we want to wrap, how we want to wrap those in, in sort of idiomatic closure in Lambda. So very briefly, for those who don't know sort of document management, our fresco stores documents, files, if you will, um, in, in a tree structure folders, typically, each of these files can have any number of content streams. So that's one difference between a content management system or a document management system and a file system. File system, usually your file has one content stream, the content of the file. Alfresco can have as many content streams as you like. So you might store, for example, an image and then some thumbnail streams along with the original, you know, presumably high definition image. It also has this notion of metadata, and you might think of metadata as being a little bit like the the stat data, as I think of it, on a file system, creator, modifier, modified date, creation date, etc. The difference in a content management system is that's open-ended. You can add as many properties as you like. They can have their own data definitions, data type, mandatory rules. Are they multi-valued? You know, do they have to meet some sort of 
uh, declarative constraint? Are they chosen from a pick list of controlled vocabulary? There's all sorts of ways that those models can be defined, but at the end of the day, they boil down to pretty much key value pairs on a, we call it a node, on a file. And of course, that could be a file or a folder. Alfresco itself is and this is not specific to Alfresco. I'm not, not sort of trying to do a pitch on Alfresco. Most of the content management systems out there, the old legacy ones, uh, Documentum systems like that do this. Newer ones like SharePoint also do it. The difference in Alfresco's case is that because you have a fairly low level of access into the Java internals of Alfresco through this Java API, you can actually do a lot of interesting things with data that is not necessarily a file. For example, users in Alfresco, if we, you know, you go into the admin console and create a user, that's actually not created as a special row in a special users table. It's created as just a node, and the node is of type person. And a person node has a user ID, it has a password that's encrypted, email address, blah, 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 all of the other properties. So the Java API lets you look at this this structure really as a data structure. And I think of it as a, it's kind of a tree database with this specialist support for content streams, for, for file content. But there's also a notion of associations where you can actually have one node have an association with another node elsewhere in the tree. It's sort of, sort of like a symlink, but it's between files rather than the symlink being an object of itself. So there's a graph database, if you will, layered on top of the hierarchical database. What, what we've done so far with Lambda Alpha is wrap most of the basic manipulation APIs for that stuff. So you can create nodes, you can set the type, you can populate metadata, you can stream, push streams in and read them back out. Um, you can create the associations between those things. You can operate on subtrees. Um, in fact, one of the early things that Carlo and I played with was implementing the zipper abstraction on top of the Alfresco folder hierarchy. So you can use a zipper to walk the tree and and you know, operate on the nodes that you visit as you go. The The other thing is you can also hook into the system sort of with a trigger mechanism. So these things are called behaviors and they let you hook in custom logic when certain events take place. A file is created, I want to record that in some third party system or I want to notify someone. You could do that sort of thing with a behavior. So we've wrapped those as well. And, and that's a, actually an interesting perhaps something we can dig into a little bit. That's an interesting Java interop problem because the way Alfresco natively does that is it has a bucket load of Java interfaces. There's basically a separate interface for every single one of those behaviors. And there's about, I want to say about 60 different behavior types that you can hook into, create, delete, update, read, read properties, read content, et cetera, et cetera. There's sort of this huge set of these things. And they all differ slightly in the Java code. The method names that you implement are different between each behavior. Mm. And the parameter lists for each of those methods is different in each behavior. And so I, I hope the listeners who sort of are a bit a step or two beyond me um, will immediately think, well, that's a macro. That's a great problem for macros. But it took me a little while to realize, oh, macros let me just describe all of these interfaces as a list. And then I have a macro that just processes the list and spits out all of the interop. So we have this, um, it's one of the namespaces in Lambda Alpha is to do with behaviors. And if you just did a, you know, you look at the public um, vars in that namespace, you'll just see a set of functions register, you know, on content update, call my function. 
and it will just register it for you. But under the covers, that, that function is actually generated by a macro based on this, this big list we have, which just describes the, the Java interface to be implemented, the method name, the number of arguments it takes, and some other bits and pieces. And then it just spits out the appropriate registration function, which is what you as a, a user of Lambda would, would, would use. So, um, but it took me a while. And initially, um, I started down this road by hand coding them. So I did three or four of the behaviors and the closure code was getting pretty long and it was 95% the same. And then I realized, you know what, this is probably time to learn macros, time to get in. And, and to be honest, that's the only time I've really had to use macros. I know a lot of people talk about macros as one of the big value propositions, I guess, of closure. But um, I would say just in my own experience, they're super handy when you need them, but most of the time you actually don't need them just vanilla f you know vanilla, vanilla functions are, are sufficient yeah that's actually generally my experience as well which is I, I rarely write them but i use them all the time as we all do yeah and i think that's that's actually a distinction that gets sometimes a little lost in when we talk about the value prop is is that it's super important that macros exist <laughs> so that other people can write them less important that they exist so that you can write them i think is the general experience the other thing I would say is that you were talking, you reminded me that there's a, there's a similar approach to using macros, or rather an approach that takes advantage of uh, closure being a list, being homo-iconic, that I don't know if it would apply in your case, but it definitely applies in some cases, where you don't necessarily have to write a macro, because of course there are some you know, pitfalls there. They are more difficult to... Uh, to write and to debug sometimes than you know regular functions, but one approach you can actually take is you can write closure code, just regular closure code, functional closure code that emits closure code quite straightforwardly because of course closure code is you know just a bunch of data structures and we know how to make those, and so you could do something that is for example using Java reflection to statically look at some bunch of uh, classes and and just emitting a data structure, which you then save in a file that becomes a closure source file, right? Now, that's a little bit different. I mean, that's a very static thing, right? That's, I essentially wrote kind of a mini compiler, if you will, that spits out um, closure source code, but it's a perfectly valid approach to doing to doing that, especially if the input data is something that never changes or changes rarely. Um, so it's, it's re- an interesting approach. It's really interesting you mentioned that. And to bring it back to your question about the future, one of my thoughts is now that we have this data structure, this list that describes which of these behavior interfaces should be um, exposed via the Lambda Alpha APIs, my, the part of the reason for doing that is, of course, the next step is to do exactly what you just described and actually have the closure code introspect the alfresco, basically, class path, if you will, or the, the you know the, the classes, find all of the behaviors dynamically and generate the list at runtime so that instead of me having to hard code the list, which to be honest is not that much work, it's just a list, but have another thing generate the list that is then consumed by the macro that spits out the actual functions that are part of the public Lambda Alpha API. So I had, I had thought about that. The trick will be then you're into... Um, and, and one thing I'll also say, just on minor point, but Clojure makes reflections so much easier than <laughs> Java. It's it's just easy to use and very natural. Doing reflection in Java itself is, has, has always been a 
a, kind of an unpleasant experience when I've, I've done it. So it's another minor benefit. But uh, the one thing I haven't quite figured out is the the Alfresco system, these modules can also add behaviors. So in fact, Alfresco sells some kind of additional add-on type modules. And one of the some of those modules add new behaviors. So I think you do have to do it dynamically because we can't assume, Carlo and I can't assume that those behaviors will exist in a particular Alfresco installation. So I'm actually keen to do it fully dynamically at the time that the namespace is, is loaded, is required by somebody's code to run through and look at the running system and say, okay, we have this module and that module added on. In fact, it wouldn't even be that. We would just say, give us all of the behavior interfaces and then generate functions for everything that we found. And that would be a different set based on each customer's or each installation's unique pattern of installation, if you will. Sure. Makes total sense. Yeah. So I had thought about that, but for now the list is hard coded and it is a bit unwieldy. But um, I mean, unwieldy enclosure is you're talking, you know, 20 lines of code, 30 <laughs> yeah. lines of code. It's not like Java where there's thousands of lines of unwieldy code. It's, it's, you know, that succinctness really, really pays off in spades. Absolutely. Cool. So that's that's actually a great. So I, I mean, we were kind of talking about the future, and we touched on one thing you're thinking about. Is there are there other aspects of future direction that you want to want to share with the audience? Yeah, and and keep in mind this is very much a hobbyist project. Carlo and I both have day jobs that don't actually revolve around Lambdalf, so it's very much an as we find time. And I guess I'm giving the usual safe harbor. I'm, I'm actually a product <laughs> manager in my day job, so I'm used to safe harbor statements, but. Um, I would actually like to play a little bit with Ohm. And Alfresco has a, a web application, the user interface that's very HTML5, JavaScript type of thing. It's all built, well, it's built around a variety of things. It's, it's been around a few years, but um, the latest incarnation is very jQuery centric. And there is a, a client side plugin mechanism there that lets you add new user widgets, if you will. I'd love to play a little bit with Ohm, and I haven't even done a tutorial with it yet, but one of the things I'd like to do is play with Ohm and see if we could actually do another project, or if you will, sub-project of the overall Lambdalf thing, which is focusing on the client side of Alfresco development, adding new UIs, because Ohm seems like, I've I've been doing web development since 2000, but I've always tried to shy away from the the client side, because it just seems like it's it seems like a grand war in Asia, something I don't, I just don't want to get embroiled in. So Ohm, though, seems to finally be a, an approach that it seems rational to me. You know, it's, it's just from the outside naive perspective. It seems like it really rationalizes a very messy environment. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do some. I mean, in fact, Mark Stang, I mentioned him before. He did the AMP template that, that's in the Lambda project. I know he's been playing with it quite a bit and is really impressed. So... I'd love to pick Mark's brains and maybe have him see if he's interested in, in kicking something like that off because, you know, JavaScript is just, it's a tough environment to work in, I think. And adding ClojureScript and Ohm, I think, would be would be wonderful. Yeah, the marriage of uh, functional and UI is something that I feel like as an industry we've taken a bunch of runs at and have have not yet overall conquer. Maybe there's some implementation somewhere that I'm not aware of. UI is not my space, but I certainly the stuff I've seen, I feel like we have, with the possible exception of Ohm, which I haven't spent significant time with either, I feel like it's a, it's an, we'll put it this way, it's an area of active research as far as I'm aware. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really telling. I mean, I was doing client service systems in the 90s, and it's really telling to me that we're still at a, at a very similar level of maturity on the UI front. It doesn't feel like web development, and I'm going to make a lot of enemies in saying this, but uh, it doesn't feel to me like, you know, there's been orders of magnitude improvement in UI development since, you know, since the 90s, since things like, you know, Visual Basic and, and tools like that, which I'm not advocating. I don't think they're great tools. It's more a I think a sad indictment of, or maybe it's a reflection of the inherent difficulty of doing, of providing good UI, um, you know, developer platforms and, and tooling. So yeah, so yeah, I'm excited by OM though. I think uh, I think and and it's got you know I hear it has performance benefits as well. The the dirty DOM type approach and the Delta, the application of deltas to the real DOM that sounds like you get immediate benefits sort of as, almost as a side effect of the, the pure design or the, the clean design. Yeah, I think the win there, the way, and we had uh, David Nolan on talking about this, is actually falls out of uh, ClojureScript, which is something else I wanted to ask uh, you guys about. The fact that in React, which of course OM is built on top of, some of the costs can be is, is, are associated with, um, with diffing, and diffing immutable data structures is trivial. <laughs> yep. So if you start with, trivi- with uh, immutable data structures and you just... That, that cost goes goes uh, a lot closer to zero. And and just as, as that reminds me of something um, that I really wanted to mention, you know, I think uh, one of the things in approaching other Java developers, particularly those who've been doing it a long time, so they have a lot of invested kind of energy and effort and knowledge, and there's a natural human tendency to want to protect and deflect other things. And I've, I feel that myself, you know, with new technologies that pop up all the time. But that's actually what you mentioned about the immutable data structures is probably has been to me the biggest liberating benefit of closure the combination of of function functional programming or functional concepts with immutable data structures on top of the jvm has been you know this sort of virtuous you know triangle of of features being a lisp is is nice and i think there's benefits there being having a good macro system you know, some of those other sorts of benefits that people talk about when they talk about closure is, are all great, but actually it's the immutable data structures are absolutely killer. They're just so so wonderful to work with. And hats off to, you know, Rich Hickey for for dreaming it up and realizing that it was feasible. It's it's an amazing, amazing thing. Well, me, yeah, actually, totally. Go ahead, Carlo. More than, uh, than immutable data structures, which are great indeed. To, to me, the, the, the killer feature is, is uh, the, the functional side of, uh, of, of, of programming, as in functions as first class. Uh, that, that's really you know, opening up a, a world of concise code for you. So specifying you know, units of, of, or units of logic that you can pass around and toss and, and reuse wherever you want, that's, that's making your code to the point, you, you can really condense all you want to do in, uh, in, in a very small amount of code. That's uh, one, one very great feature for me. Also, when working with Lambda, for me, I remember that you know, some of the first bits of code that I pushed into, into GitHub, they were about exploiting macros plus functional programming uh, to, to just you know, uh, encapsulate uh, something that in Java was really, really complex. Well, in, in, for the details, Alfresco allows you to, let's say, specify uh, something that has to run within one single transaction and as, as an instance of an anonymous class that you have to, to, in, to just you know, implement on the fly. So you, you look at your Java code, you're creating an anonymous class uh, from an interface and, and you're giving it to a, to a system that will execute it in one single transaction, retrying it if you want. 
well in in, in closure that right now you can just you know give a function to the to the system and and that's you know from from you know the syntax for creating anonymous classes in java is just horrible and, and makes you want to cry and, and you enclosure just <laughs> you, you give a function and, and and you're you're done and then that looks beautiful and, and it doesn't confuse you even when you read your code from three years ago you're not stuck into those you know create create class and instant and uh, override methods and do this and do that you just see the logic that you want to to execute and, and you're done and that, that's a great feature i think as well well closure and any functional language for that matter cannot disagree with you i was a c-sharp programmer for a long time and uh you know, C Sharp has had lambdas for quite a while. Java's getting them now. I actually think yeah. it's entirely possible that the introduction of lambdas into Java 8 will do more for closure adoption than anything else previously has. Because as you say, it's a key idea. And exposing a community the size of the Java community to those ideas could be, uh, you know, an additional trigger for people understanding the power behind them. So I, I think that's a, it's a, I'm just excited for people to get that tool because it was a big deal for us in the C-sharp world when we got lambdas and when we also got um, link, which is a, a feature that um, has a lot of resemblance to the, the holy trio of map filter and reduce, you know, in, in closure. So yeah, I'm right there with you. Well, um, one interesting challenge, I think, is uh, letting go of types for your basic data. Mm. That was something that took me a while. And, and keep in mind, I actually, I should, in the interest of disclosure, say I was very much a strong typing, static typing junkie. I think I mentioned to you, Craig, before, the, before we started that I'd done some work, or in fact, my university taught in using a language called Eiffel, which is a strong statically typed OO language. It's actually a wonderful OO language, but never really caught on unfortunately, but uh, I was very much sort of a defender of that faith. And um, that was one of the biggest hurdles I had in coming to Clojure was kind of letting go and being cool, being Zen with having my data in maps and lists of maps and trees of, you know, lists and all that kind of just, just viewing it as data. In fact, my Conway's Game of Life example, I defined a type with, you know, for a point for a, for a coordinate system, and then I defined a board that is made up of an array of points, and it it I then it sort of iterated all that away, and and what it what came out of it for me was an understanding that that actually just obfuscates things, it it, it breaks up the succinctness, and it reduces the utility of of your code because you can't just apply gener generic functions. So I've really now become a huge fan of data as data, meaning using data structures, not DTOs, not POJOs, not objects. But I suspect that that's actually one of the bigger hurdles that the kind of Java community, and perhaps C Sharp as well, and C and, and others may have to overcome is this is this idea that you don't need types for absolutely everything. You can just use data structures for data and then apply functions to those data structures. Yeah, the old uh, Perlis quote, right? The better to have uh, 10 functions that operate on 10 data structures, something, uh, you, the people will remember it correctly, I'm probably messing it up. Better to have 100 functions that operate on one data structure than 10 that operate on 10, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly, I now see it in, in and I hate to, to, to say it, but I see it in our Fresco's code base where there are things like we have a qualified name which represents effectively a namespace in our Fresco's type system that the, the prop node properties I was talking about earlier are all the property names, the, the, the keys, if you will, are namespaced. Well, that, that's a DTO. There's a little data type 
object in there called QName, qualified name. And in in Clojure, I would just use a keyword for that. There's no need to go and create a sort of all this formality and you know rigmarole around what is really a, a simply a just a little you know qualified name it's just a, you know effectively almost a string so in fact speaking of futures that's one thing I'd, i've been exploring a little bit fork of, of my private sort of branch of of uh, Lambdalf is can we actually start to augment some of the things that our that our fresco treats using strings like these qualified names can we switch those for keywords because i think that gives a better idiomatically closure experience yeah, I, coming I th- to it i think that's an interesting point actually so that I remember, I think, um, a post from Stuart Sierra uh, about a similar topic. So, uh, is it a good idea to wrap APIs to create your closure wrapper? Is it? Is, is it? Are you better off just, you know, passing around the, the the Java objects and types that you receive from the original API? The problem with creating your own wrappers, I, I do agree that having, you know, a, a direct closure. Uh, idiomatic APIs for for your developers is great, and you. But I think you have to find a trade-off. What if you uh, 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 Fresco itself, like the, the original uh, down, um, upstream project, changes some of the semantics of the API that you're wrapping, or or augments it, so new APIs, new meanings, new functions, new things, then you you have to constantly update your stuff, your wrapper. Uh, to, to match what's new in the in the upstream project, and uh, and that might be good in the case of, of um, in selected cases of uh, uh, like like the the queue name, the qualified name, which is very much something that represents a value. But in other cases, uh, wrapping more complex APIs in, into like hash maps or, or, or closure maps is might be counterproductive because then you will find yourself re-implementing the same logic that's uh, done for you upstream if you were using the, the original types or, or maybe just you know losing yourself in converting back and forth closure model and the java model and that, that's an interesting thing to explore as, as a you know uh, part of the java interop discussion with lambda yeah i was just talking to somebody about this today that that it's important when you in my opinion at least it's important when you're when you're creating a closure library that um, makes use of a java library that you have a very clear vision about what value you're adding. And, and that value shouldn't just be, well, it's closure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like restating it. That's like, it, there's, there's no point to that. I'm not, and I'm not suggesting at all that that's what's happening with Lambda Elf. Not at all. But, but there definitely are libraries that people have written that are just restatements of, of the, the underlying Java library. And worse, that possibly make it more difficult to work with all the features of the underlying Java library. So I think if you just have in mind, here is what I am adding by making this closure library and a very clear idea of that, then it becomes much easier to say, okay, that's my driving principle and that's how I, um, that's how I design my library is to achieve that end. Well, I think actually you had a guest on in the last couple of episodes who was talking about, is it CLJ time is a really good... I want to say it was CLJ time, and I remember the guest saying it's an excellent example of a of a library that really value adds. Not only is it idiomatically closure, which is a small benefit, but it actually does things that the underlying library that are difficult with the underlying Java library, which in that case I think is Joda time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've actually it's on my list of things to look at as to well, what did they do? How did they do this? And why is that value? How is that value created? Because I'd love for Lambdaf. I'd, it's a bit like the zipper example. A zipper is a nice way to walk a hierarchy. The Alfresco repository is a hierarchy. It's a nice way to walk. 
But in making it a zipper, we suddenly open up all these other things that know how to operate on zippers for free. We don't, right. we didn't have to write that. So that's the, I think that's the fine line in my mind. And I don't know if it can be quantified better than that, but um, I'd, I'd, I'm very much a believer in looking for prior art and it sounds like CLJ Time. Was it CLJ Time or CLJ Money? One of those two libraries, I remember one of your guests saying was, was excellent. So I, I think it was uh, Eric Normand, I believe. And, I think it was uh, I, Eric, yeah. I believe it was CLJ Time, but uh, and anyway. Well, okay, so we, we are kind of coming to the end of, uh, end of our time here, but that's a fascinating discussion that I, we could totally continue for probably like another hour. But but before we go, I want to make sure that we do reserve a little time to talk about anything else that we should definitely uh, not omit from this episode. So if either of you have any other topics that uh, you think are important to, to cover this time, I'd, I'd, now would be a great time to throw those out. Uh, Carlo, you have anything else you'd like us to address? Actually, not, not nothing specifically. I think it was just quite some fun to be here and, and talk about London. So I'm, I'm pretty happy as, as we are right now. Cool. Well, we'll, I mean, we'll definitely have you guys back on at, at some point to, um, I think it would be fun, if nothing else, to revisit the topic of, uh, y- you know, you guys went and looked at CLJ Time or just in general thought about what it means to be a rapper and got more experience. Yeah. I think that's a super interesting topic in and of itself. So it'd be fun to have you guys back on and uh, at some future point and, um, and, and talk about that. But uh, so, uh, so I'll go, but I'll go to Peter. Was there anything uh, that that, uh, that you wanted to cover additionally today? No, no, I think I've rambled on long enough, so thanks, <laughs> thanks so much. Not at all. Oh, no, it was great. It was really interesting. I think, like, I'll repeat, you know, your idea to get perspective of a couple people who are using this as a, a rather serious hobby project. I mean, obviously, this is a non-trivial undertaking, but but who don't necessarily get paid to do this stuff is is great. I think we, we can't have too many of those stories given... The number of people in the world that have that same experience, and obviously um, you guys have uh, put in quite a bit of work on this things, and and uh, are continuing to do so. So uh, no, it's uh, not work if you're having fun, and that's the thing. Closure is a lot of fun. That really summarizes it for me. I think. Well, obviously I agree with you. <laughs> well, cool. All right. Well, then let's uh, go ahead and move to the final question. And since we had Carlo uh, pick the wonderful intro song. We will ask for Peter to uh, give us a song to play out on. What would you like us to use, Peter? Yeah, so my pick, I, I had a broad, I have a very broad taste in music, but I wanted to pick some jazz because I don't think we've heard much jazz. And that was Blue Rondo a la Turk, which is by the Dave Brubeck Quartet. And um, Mr. Brubeck actually passed away almost two years ago. So I figured it was appropriate to, to give him a little homage and, and have him on the show. I think that's great. And I think I won't maybe go into the reasons why because I can't say I've thought this through all the way but I feel that uh, jazz as a genre is somehow appropriate to a language like closure it just has a, a certain je ne sais quoi about it that uh, that appeals to me as a some kind of symmetry but the uh, word is sublime it's sublime <laughs> <laughs> all right well I will I will thank uh, the both of you again so much for coming on the show it was really interesting conversation for me Peter thanks uh, for coming on a ton Carl thank you Thank you guys both for, for coming on and, uh, you know, wish you the best of luck with uh, Lambda Elf and would, would love to sync up with you again at some point and, and hear how it's going and uh, find out how your journey towards increasing closure mastery and, <laughs> and increasing use of it in uh, Lambda Elf has, uh, or whatever else you're using on it has gone. So uh, it'd be fun. But, uh, but thanks, Peter, for, for coming on the show and, and Carlo for coming on. No, thank you very much. Yeah, right. thank you. Well, Yes, well, it's been great, and uh, we will close there. This has been the Cockney Cast.
You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guests today were Peter Monks on Twitter at PMonks, P-M-O-N-K-S, and Carlo Schola on Twitter at Scuro, S-K-U-R-O. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Kim Foster. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.